Hello and welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. I'm your host, David, and today we have Dr. Matthew Lundgren from Nuance Communications. He is the Chief Medical Information Officer uh, at Nuance Communications, a Microsoft company. As a physician and clinical machine learning researcher, he maintains a part-time interventional radiology practice at UCSF, while also serving as adjunct faculty for other leading academic medical centers, including Stanford and Duke. Prior to joining Microsoft, Dr. Lundgren led the Stanford Center for Artificial Intelligence in, Medi- in Medicine and Imaging. So thank you, Dr. Lundgren, for coming on to our show today. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us about your path and how you came to the intersection of medicine and machine learning. Yeah, well, thank you. I know I really appreciate the opportunity to be on. And uh, yeah, great to, great to finally meet you. Um, yeah, so I, um, my, my career path is definitely non-traditional for sure. I started out, as most folks do, uh, wanting to pursue medicine um, and ended up getting really interested in technology along the way, right? And that's how that's what kind of led me to interventional radiology, which is a subset, as you know, of radiology. And so being able to use images and kind of cool tech and devices to to treat patients was really an exciting uh, area for me. At least it got got me going. And um, as part of that, though, you know, I was sort of uh, from a research perspective, I kept running into opportunities to say, well, can we take a step back and a broader look at things from a population health level? Are there insights that we're radiology that we aren't considering? A lot of, as you know, population health research is, you know, based a lot on claims codes, very, maybe I would say generalist data, not necessarily specific data. And there's a lot of untapped, you know, information about patients that's locked up in radiology reports or surgical uh, sort of reports, right? But that's unstructured text, which is very difficult to deal with at scale. Um, with, you know, traditional techniques. And so that's what started to get me in about 15 years ago, uh, starting to play around with NLP, right, to sort of extract those insights, right, and just say at a population level, do we have more normals coming from this group, or what's the distribution of disease, right, and are there ways we can target our interventions and things at a population? So that was really fun. But as part of that, I came to Stanford and took a faculty job there and recognized that uh, this is the AI place, right, this is where it's all happening. And my uh, very you know, rudimentary abilities uh, with NLP really were like accelerated for sure by coming here. And so um, right around 2014, that's when you started seeing computer vision really taking off, right, with ImageNets, uh, you know, the Microsoft research work, um, all the all the great work with ResNets and things. So getting to a place where now could we combine all the things that I'm doing at a pop level with text data? Can we throw in images? Are there more we can do? So that's when we really started to accelerate. So that's that's kind of how I ended up in the space. And then to be honest with you, my, uh, you know, I practiced half time at Stanford and the other half of my time was just, you know, you know, researcher uh, running a lab and running a center there. And in that process, kind of just got a casual education over the, you know, eight or 10 years working with all the brilliant folks at, at, at Stanford um, on ways we could work together. And I think that that's, um, that's what I really found what I love to do the most, right? Multidisciplinary teams, taking technology from one area, applying it to healthcare, and uh, and seeing what's possible. Wow, that's awesome. That I, I didn't realize NLP, you know, 15 years ago, there was already work going on, like being made on it. Lots of NLP research over the years. Yeah, support vector machines all the way back to, I think my first paper support vector machines was maybe 2005, I want to say. Pretty crazy. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that's pretty cool, because I, I feel like, it wasn't really until like the past 10 years that people really started, you know, talking about this kind of stuff. And 
yeah awesome. it's well you know it's it's funny the the one thing i find uh and i like to do this in some of my talks just because it's it's entertaining and always kind of an aha moment but like if you look up things that we're trying to do now and just kind of go back as far as you can historically in the literature you could find stuff all the way back to like the 70s 60s sometimes right where folks were i mean a lot of it rules-based a lot of bayesian stuff but still like the things that we're trying to accomplish were these are not like oh we're brilliant because we're coming up with this ourselves right it's always been something that people much more you know intelligent than us probably because they're having to do a lot of hand calculations even at some point but but you realize that it, it really wasn't until the convergence of compute the convergence of obviously some of the, the the amount of data that we have digitized that allowed these things to happen but a lot of these things i get you know back prof is not was not invented in 2012 right oh yeah that's like 1980s right yeah, yeah. And, you know convolutional neural network none of these things are like brand brand new obviously some That's of the new things like transformers are but but you get the point right like a lot of this stuff is just great ideas really awesome computer science innovation but not the compute or the data to really make it sort of you can demonstrate what it can do right and that's where mm -hmm. again i really turn to uh you know the, the pioneering work by feifei in terms of getting enough data into a place where researchers around the world can all collaborate and actually show uh what the power of these things uh really is that's inspiring that's wow so before medical school did you did you know that you were you know did you have a, like a coding background or like a technical background nope not at all i was an english major i no way. I, yeah definitely not uh technical at all in fact uh really just i i love I love reading. I love literature. I love arts, and and so that was really my my core area. But but I think that coming out of that, what I've noticed, and the similarities, at least for me personally, obviously not this may not apply to everyone, but there's something incredibly uh, elegant about the idea of taking a model that can essentially be a blank sheet of paper, just like a blank sheet of paper for a novel, and you can you know put your ideas into that. And generate something that's meaningful to the world in some way. And I think that those the, the the very creative endeavor that I think particularly recently computer science is sort of heading in that direction. I I just that's what really gets me out of bed too. I just love the idea that you can come up with a creative, elegant solution with this you know this tool uh, to do something powerful for society. And and again, I would argue that there's a lot of you know, allegories in, in literature with that same kind of mentality where can we write something that inspires someone? Can we write something that, you know, moves the needle politically or from fiction or poetry, all those kinds of things, but it's still the same kind of a medium, right? It's a tool to achieve those things. So anyway, that's how I see it in my brain, although that that's a be beautiful thought, wow. unconventional, but yeah. I kind of want to talk more about that. That's a, that's a beautiful thought. First, I want to ask what kind of, did you, do you have a favorite kind of literature or a favorite author? I mean, I've always been just kind of a postmodern guy just because I, you know, obviously it's much more in, in vogue now, but, you know, back in the 90s, <laughs> I read a lot of postmodern stuff. Um, How would you define postmodern? Postmodern post is, is well, it's, it's like short fiction, uh, basically the kind of thing that's like not uh, adhering to any specific rules. Like it's not like, you know, classical or, you know, the, the language can be much more free, like E. Cummings as the poet doesn't capitalize things, right? That kind of stuff, mm -hmm. right? Um, and just being able to sort of take language and and maybe play with it a little bit, but in in a sort of a context of um, not adhering to just very common, well-worn uh, 
um, you know, archetypes and things that for me though, like I, yeah, <laughs> it sounds kind of weird, but I, I definitely, I like science fiction, uh, you know, as part of that maybe as an offshoot, but, but that really isn't my core area. I really just enjoy, uh, I really enjoy short fiction. Um, and yeah, still subscribe to Harper's after 30 years and yeah. Where would Lolita fall on that? Is that, is that, before postmodern, you know what I mean? Is this postmodern like actually, after Lolita? I, I actually don't know. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. But probably, yeah, probably. Like David Foster Wallace? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. He's a classic example, right? Infinite Jest, uh, <laughs> one of the most challenging books. But Gravity's Rainbow, of course, is the one that we all like to brag about that we read. But we do we all really understand it? Hard to say. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, I couldn't catch it. Here's a, sorry, one more literature related question. I'm curious, so what do you think is uh, the next great American novel? Uh, it'll probably be written by GPT. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's a crazy thought. Yeah, that's this is where I really see the two parts of what I, you know, what I'm passionate about really converging in an exciting way, right? As you've probably seen with ChatGPT and then obviously all the accelerations that have been going on with large language models that that to me is really just a phenomenal opportunity to again hopefully for you know on the side of good to really superpower people that have maybe a voice that they can't express well yeah. uh maybe an idea that they can't put the pieces together just like a great you know writer might be able to and this gives them that opportunity to to do that i think this is an accelerant i think for more voices around the world being you know expressed yeah what do you think is the the last piece of great American literature written without um, the aid of GPT? <laughs> I mean, this is super subjective. I I I mean, I think the last book that I I probably I couldn't put down uh, was probably Cormac McCarthy's The Road. I thought that was just like holy cow, like you know, just the the terse writing, the obviously a very bleak book, but still. I'm gonna write uh, that down. I gotta... One of those ones I really enjoy. Yeah, I mean, they they eventually made a movie out of it, but it's definitely no way to compare to the writing in that. Um, yeah, no, I I but I you know, literature is just as subjective as anything else. But I I think you could probably also pin down, you know, anyone on their favorite. You know, what's your favorite technique? What's your favorite optimizer? What's you know, how do you how do you design your? It's the same kind of a thing, I think. Have you played around with GPT three in writing? Yeah, I, I play around ChatGPT quite a bit. Um, I've I've used it uh, recently um, quite a bit to summarize scientific literature, um, and then to sort of be a, like almost like a sidecar for you know, hey, I, what's what, what do they mean when they say this, or how would you design this? You know, you put in the method section. You can say, how would you uh, design an experiment to do this with LSTMs instead, or uh, right? And, and it sort of again, not always 100% accurate, and as you know, has some weaknesses in terms of finding references, which is unfortunate, but I think that's a solvable problem. Yeah. Uh, but but really can kind of spur new ideas or even just say, put in the discussion, say, what would you, what are some experiments that you would do to build on this work, et cetera. Pretty, it's pretty fun. And, I, and that's obviously very academically focused. I think just from a creative perspective, um, I haven't, you know, I don't write creatively really, but um, I've seen a lot of work online about folks that have just taken in all kinds of directions. And again, this is the kind of thing where, you know, even if my grandparents are talking about chat GBT, you know, this has really been a kind of a sea change moment, right? This is like the World Wide Web or the first iPhone. I really think that this is going to be 
the technology that, that uh, changes the world. I've personally played around with ChatGPT and I do enjoy creative writing. I've put in some of my writing in there and seeing what it spits out. And I'll be honest, it was, it was a little terrifying. Yeah, well, you can ask it to write it. You can ask it to write it in any like format you want, like write it as a children's book, write it as a Stephen King novel, write it as a, you know, whatever. Uh, It'll do it for you. Yeah, it's it was terrifying how how good the stuff that it spat back out at me. I was like, oh my goodness. I do you ever are you ever uh, afraid or do you feel fear from the power that you know we see in these new in this technology i don't know i don't know if i i don't know if i've had that emotion uh i've definitely had a kind of a very like you know uh i've had a feeling like it's like it's like i'm seeing something big i mean i I mean my generation i'm in this weird gen x like which is sort of weird because you know i grew up with landlines and right fax machines and like even writing before you know a typewriter right and then records and things and then kind of moved and then my generation right really just every four or five years we'd have some new thing right you know the mobile phone the, the internets right email like all these things kind of came up and so it, it does feel a little bit to me like that um right when i first saw the world wide web aol you got a disc in the mail right yeah. or yeah, yeah I remember. Steve jobs first held up the iphone like that those moments to me, I think, have a lot of similarity to how we'll look back at the, you know, there's a there's a pretty recent but famous, I think, picture of Satya Nadella with with Sam Altman. And and that, I think, is going to be just as iconic as we look back in the next four or five years as some of those other things that are burned in our memories about how technology has really just um, changed our lives. Mm. And that's a perfect segue. Speaking of Satya Nadella. We should talk about your work at Nuance. Um, and I was wondering, you know, could you tell us about Nuance and its partnership with Microsoft? Or uh, is, is it a partnership or merger? Um, kind of how would you describe it to a medical student? Oh, yeah. No. Uh, so they um, they were partners for quite a while. They were uh, So Nuance Communications, just for those who aren't familiar, it's um, the, the fundamental core technology is voice to text, right? Something called Dragon. Uh, used by 80% of physicians in the country and they also have a they have a solution that's more general for most other you know types of physicians but then they also have an entire arm uh, that's related to, to, to medical imaging and again the vast majority of people at least in the US use their technology to dictate reports that are used right for for, for clinical care and uh, as the AI sort of you know, kind of boom, kind of kicked off, I want to say in 2017, really in earnest, 2018, um, you know, a lot of the the companies needed a, a way to deploy the solutions that they've been developing. And Nuance kind of saw this as an opportunity because they're already integrated into health systems across the country uh, to say, well, we can provide that integration, that last mile piece, which is obviously one of the hardest things to solve. We can all come up with an algorithm. We might even be able to get it FDA approved. How are you going to get it in the hands of clinicians, right? Yeah. That's a very difficult problem that's often underestimated by, you know, pretty much anyone you talk with. And so uh, so, so Nuance, um, because they're in that last mile, represents at least for, for me, but then also obviously for Microsoft, the opportunity to say, are there tools and platforms that we can build that accelerate the ecosystem, change the infrastructure for folks doing digital transformation, like a health system who still uses fax machines and pagers? Can we move it into... 
ideally the cloud environment where we can iterate and deploy much more quickly and get these innovations out into the world. Um, and so they, they eventually, Microsoft acquired Nuance, which I believe was closed last spring. Um, and I think that really is going to be, for me, the full end-to-end -end story, right? Going from kind of what we, we talked about at the beginning, kind of a blank slate. You have cloud resources, you have storage, you have compute, you have a ton of tools and services, and now you have an integration environment that sort of closes that development and deployment gap that you're seeing, right? There's 300 plus FDA cleared AI solutions out in the world. 2% uh, of clinicians have touched one of those. Wow, and it's yeah. not because they they don't work. It's not, that's not the reason. There's just so much infrastructure that needs to be uh, sort of dealt with before you can get it into the world. So, so that's where I, that's why I chose this, you know, path. I think for me, I loved academics. Uh, I still practice, you know, but, but, you know, sort of the things that I was frustrated about trying to run clinical trials and things with things we built in our lab is just like, oh man, it took us six months to build something we thought was really cool and worked extremely well. And then it took us 18 months plus to get into one health system, right? So like, wow. how do I, like in that frustration, I think is felt by everyone in the field to some extent. And so how do we uh, get to a place where the people are talking with each other, they understand each other's pain points or point of view, the technology, et cetera. Uh, I felt like maybe this is a, a time for, you know, for me to make a change uh, to learn at the same time, but also to really try to break open this ecosystem. That's super cool. I personally have used Dragon, and I think it's an incredible <laughs> technology. And I'm sure many of our listeners have, have used it. I was wondering, what did, did Dragon come first? And then Nuance, is that how Nuance grew? Or did Nuance have other things? And then they made Dragon, and that really took off? It's a great question. I, my understanding, and again, I, I, this company is, you know, well predates my uh, being here. But, um, but I believe it was the, the voice-to-text technology that really got them into the healthcare space, but they also, right, that voice to text is also used in other industries. You know, it's not just healthcare, right, but that's mm -hmm. the predominant uh, area. And I think over, the, and this is where I, the famous Amazon saying that there's no compression in algorithm for experience. It's really that, it's that experience, right? It's like working through growing up with healthcare, all the infrastructure that they're accustomed to now dealing with having that experience of being on the ground, those relationships, understanding that pain of the heterogeneous implementations, working with the HR vendors and working with PAX vendors, et cetera, all that stuff that like makes your eyes cross thinking about, that's what they're good at, right? So they're really good at the stuff that is incredibly hard and there's no like, oh, I'm just gonna wipe the slate clean and start over. That's just not a thing in healthcare, right? So, yeah, yeah. So we really do have to tangle with that infrastructure in order to get technology into the hands of docs. So before AI, right, it was, how do I get voice to text done? Uh, so docs are able to save time and get through their day and see more patients, et cetera. Well, that getting that into clinics was a multi-year, probably even more decade long process. Um, but, but now that that's kind of been an institutional knowledge slash experience, then as new technologies come online, it's more, you know, it's a good avenue to deliver that. Wow, that that is, I hadn't thought about how pain, you know, with implementation, that makes a lot of sense. It's really and, tough. <laughs> wow. That, it's like you guys are like this, uh, like an enzyme, you know, that's like helping with that implementation, <laughs> you know, lowering that activation energy. Um, <laughs> it's a good way to think of it, actually, yeah. 
And I was wondering, there's other like solutions I saw on the website. There's like other nuanced solutions. I was wondering, do you have like a favorite one, um, like a favorite new thing? Um, you know, I, I, I guess uh, I spend a lot more of my time on data science and strategy uh, between the two orgs. But um, so I'm not as much in the product space. But but when I think about how do we, which of the products would be best suited for this data science innovation or this platform or tool or service or whatever, um, I think, again, I think that the, the precision imaging network, which is the ability to drop off, you know, the resources needed for a hospital system to run inference for, with, you know, with these, with these technologies and put it into existing workflows. So, you know, you don't have to click on four other things on your desktop in order to get to some model to provide that insight. I think that's, that's the thing that I uh, am most excited about spending a lot of time with. The other thing is, um, again, this will be a surprise maybe to some people who aren't familiar with healthcare, but if you wanted a copy of your medical imaging test from hospital A because you're being seen at hospital B, today even, in 2022, almost 2023, you still have to get a disc most of the time burned and then hand carry it over. It's crazy. Or mailed over. Yeah. And that, it's insane for people to think about this digital world we have. And so... Uh, but that's changing, right? And so one of the products they have is PowerShare, which allows healthcare systems to easily exchange your medical imaging so that when you're at hospital B, they can query hospital A and pull those studies. You don't have to repeat studies like that. And again, really powerful sort of network opportunity there from my perspective. Again, going back to the idea of population health, can we learn something about the imaging studies that are being moved around the country? Is there insight? Is there insight there that, that we may not have had before because we were all hand carrying discs around and trying to figure out how to get uh, imaging studies from, from different places? Yeah, I've seen people carry around the CDs and it, it's kind of silly that, you know, most of our computers, our laptops don't even have CD ROM. They don't even read CDs anymore. It's a well, no, it's literally a problem. In fact, uh, you know, in my practice now, like I'll have a patient come come and see me and they'll bring their disc and I, I literally don't even know how I can open it without having to go to a special computer somewhere off in the basement, right? Because again, to your point, uh, you know, even if they make a link available, it's a whole thing to like log in to like get it all set up. And, and so again, trying to solve some of those pain points, it's all about just breaking down some of the silos of infrastructure that we've built in healthcare for a purpose, right? I mean, you, you really don't want to have secure data. You don't want it to be, uh, you know, hack hackable, et cetera. That's kind of the whole game. But at the same time, that that approach has been maybe taken to the extreme uh, to some extent, right? So then to, to, to unlock that is difficult. Uh, and that's part of that whole, are we going to get to a digital transformation? My bet, obviously with my career even, is that the answer is going to be yes, that in five to 10 years, Healthcare systems will not own data centers. They will not try to deal with managing their own servers. They'll probably use the cloud, right? And, yeah. and I think um, as the economics start to be sort of, you know, turning into their favor, um, you still need to understand cloud, how cloud is used, all those things. And there's a big gap in knowledge between a tra traditional healthcare system and then what the other industries are doing in the cloud, right? And how do you bring those together that's kind of part of what I do. Mm. Oh, I, have, I have many questions I want to ask. One question I wanted to ask uh, related, you know, with healthcare systems as, as medical students or people going into medicine, doctors, how much code do you think they should know? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I think that my my answers evolved a little bit over the last ten years. I think you know when I was first starting out, um, you know, even I took classes in Python and in Java and things, and not that I was doing it so that I could code anything. It was really just so that I could work more effectively with students and take courses in AI that required you know the ability to code. Right, you have to go through exercises and, and learn the principles as you go and. Um, that was really valuable. However, I think over the last you know two or three years, especially, I think that the reliance on really hardcore traditional coding skills, at least from a medical perspective, uh, I, I find that it's really not very useful. In fact, um, you know, one of the reasons for that is that there are now plenty of educational research. I used to teach a course at Stanford too on this, which is if you understand the fundamentals, the principles. The, the you know the, even at a decently high level, um, you can be incredibly effective as a physician to understand what are the best ways I can solve problem X using whether it's machine learning or just with traditional programming, right? How can I achieve that that aim? And then knowing when I'm using those systems, why it might not work, and when to trust it, when not to, right? That those are that's important. Um, and and I think closing that gap is is going to be a lot easier. Particularly as number one, I, I think that there's more, you know, folks in tech that understand are starting to learn more about healthcare and, and understand that relationship. But at the same time, clinicians learning about technology. I think as that kind of converges, um, those knowledge bases. I think you always need a multi multidisciplinary team. I don't care if you're the greatest coder in the world and you happen to be a physician. Um, as 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 I've said, I think there's there's still people out there that. Um, would be able to do that code uh, coding quite a bit better. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing I like to say is like, you know, as we, and one of the things I did a lot in my career was um, try to provide access to medical data to researchers around the world, because that's the, really the critical bottleneck, right? Is like, you may be awesome. You may have some great techniques. You don't really have any medical data to apply it to, to see if it works. And so once I started to see the ability to release that data, as accelerating the broader ecosystem, what I realized is that the crowd always, almost always wins, right? These challenges, you, you find that it's a, it's a, it's not a big tech company sometimes, right? It's a lot of times it's just a, a very talented person. Yeah. Like they learn how to code from Andrew's course and yeah. they, they really want to do something in healthcare and they took on a tackle challenge or uh, an arsenic challenge or they took some data and they reproduced it's, it's really remarkable. Um, and so to me, like the hardest knowledge to acquire is clinical knowledge, like, like clinical practice knowledge. You can't go on YouTube and take an open, you know, MOOC on, <laughs> right? You, like you, you know that, right? And, and yeah. even if you try to read every medical textbook, there's something to the actual practice of medicine that's very, very difficult to attain that knowledge. And I think people under underappreciate both the medical education that we have, which is phenomenal in the U.S., particularly. And then the number of hours that you as an intelligent human have spent thinking and doing those things, it's insane. Like it's way more than a full-time job, right? It's like two or three full-time jobs, as you well know. And as you go through residency and then, you know, become an attending, that doesn't really slow down. So you're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of hours to take a, you know, someone from a day one of med school all the way to day five of their, you know, practice. And, and then that's a very difficult knowledge base to acquire without going through that process. So, so I look at that as being kind of the core, obviously, from my perspective. And then 
learning enough about the other you know, technologies in order to bring my core knowledge into that space and be effective. Mm, I like that a lot. That's very, very inspiring. <laughs> well, listen, and, and if you really want to code yourself, I, I, I direct people to, you know, GitHub Copilot. There's plenty of Khan Academy. There's all kinds of places you can learn, Andrew's course, others, uh, where you can get up to speed enough to, to be able to, uh, to start playing around. But at the end of the day, as things start to accelerate, again, going back to the large language model concept, I think there's going to be a lot of knowledge-based skill sets um, that will be either accelerated or potentially even displaced to some extent. Uh, by the use of these technologies. Mm. Um, I'm curious, what is a typical day like uh, in, in your job as chief medical information officer? Well, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a busy it's a busy time. I think so. My my uh, oftentimes in the mornings, I'm spending it's a lot of meetings, right? Obviously, mm. my mornings are spent uh, with Microsoft Research, either in Cambridge or even all the way as far as India. Uh, kind of working through some of the very early incubation things, right? What's happening, what are the newest techniques, et cetera. And then as my day progresses, the U.S. wakes up. And, and so I'm sort of Whoa. coast to West Coast, right? And so my day ends usually in Pacific time with the headquarters of, of Microsoft and others and, and sort of dealing with, you know, what are the products, what are the cloud-based services, et cetera. And in the middle there is Nuance, where there are very much an East Coast-based company based out of Boston. And, and there, of course, it's really about uh, the now. It's like horizon one, like tomorrow stuff. And so my days are kind of bookended with like five years from now stuff, even 10 years from now stuff. And in the middle is like now. And I think that that's why I love my job because it's like, you know, you get to think about what, what the possibilities are. You get to be creative and think about that. But then like, then there's still that reality of like, I want to see I don't just want to think about cool ideas and do POCs. I want to actually see things actually in the real world. And so I get a little bit of taste of both by, by doing that. That's super cool. So when do you start your day then? If it's uh, if you're meeting with. Yeah, well, I, I like to shift it um, a little bit more, but I'm typically first meeting somewhere in the six thirty to seven range. I mean, it's very similar. My OR schedule used to be like, I, you know, obviously oh, yeah. you gotta be there early. Um, but, but, you know, typically my, my day will kind of trail off around four or five, which is nice. And then you'll have the occasional evening. Right. But it, again, it's not like, I guess I've been in, you know, I've been in administrative kind of roles before where every meeting's a burden and you're like, uh, you know, this is, I hate meetings, et cetera. I totally understand that sentiment. I'm just, I feel like I'm in this really strange, uh, like alternative universe where the meetings are actually pretty fun. Everyone I work with is awesome. I really do enjoy this, this role. And. And so the, the meetings are actually energizing to me. So it doesn't feel like, oh man, I have to, you know, do X, Y, Z. It's, it's more like, I can't believe I get to do X, Y, Z. Yeah. And that's awesome. that's really been a shift in mindset, especially as you compare it with, again, a lot of the administrative things that all of us physicians like to complain about that we deal with, which is where we really just want to be operating or we really just want to be taking care of patients. And we don't want to be going to a committee meeting on, you know, who's covering the call shift for the holidays, right? <laughs> stuff, right? Those are the kind of things that drain your energy. I, I don't have too many of those types of interactions, which has really been great. Do you have any advice for medical students who are interested in a non-traditional career path? Yeah, you know, I think in general, um, well, again, starting from a core medical uh, sort of foundation, and then making sure that you put your, like, don't, uh, I guess, 
focus on that because you'll only get one chance as you're going through medical school, as you're going through residency to learn as much as you physically can, as much as you can tolerate. And that's really the foundation you're building forever. Now, when you have that foundation, the sky's the limit, you know, academics, private practice, uh, industry, uh, startups, whatever you feel. And again, none of those are mutually exclusive. And I, and I was, I was in the same sort of uh, trap too, where I was just like, okay, well, I need to choose between what special I'm going to do. And then I have to choose academics or private practice. And that's it. Like, that's, that's my career. Like, there's no, right. There's always the odd folks that go into like, whatever, maybe they go consulting or something else. But generally speaking, that was, those are the, those are the choices. And I think now more than ever, whatever interests you, right. And I think people that are truly interested in something will find that they're spending their nights and weekends learning the code, maybe like you're doing or learning more about AI or learning more about XYZ, maybe device manufacturing or robotics or something else. There's always a need for almost any technology or any innovation in healthcare. And then there needs to be someone who understands healthcare to get it there. Um, and, and so that, that space between healthcare and you know, field X is always place where you could spend your time, whether it's the beginning of your career, mid and whatever. And I think that should be the message that hopefully folks take away what you're like, why am I studying for step one? Why do I have to do this stupid, you know, shelf exam? Like it's because it just think of it as just, it's a stepping stone. You're laying a brick foundation for being able to be anything you want to be in the future. Wow. I, I just took step two and it, <laughs> it, it almost does kind of feel like you're, um, feel like you're like developing as an enzyme, you know what I mean? You're like de developing the skill sets so that you can kind of participate in the greater sphere of medicine and kind of, like you said, you, like, you have a dream and then you go after it. Some of it's like hazing probably too, I think. It's <laughs> probably to say, I, you know, we, we always say all the, you know, these work hours and all this other stuff, but obviously there's a, there's a balance, right. To, to be struck, but but yeah, but it, but believe it or not, there'll be a neuron in your brain that you studied for step two for, and it'll you'll eventually bump into a clinical situation where you're like, ah, I know that, right? And it's like it's a really like, or at least you know how to look it up and and, and yeah. be able to, you know judge it for yourself. So yeah, so it feels kind of you know, I don't know, maybe excessive. It it ends up at least from my perspective being useful. Mm. Oh, and for our listeners, you still currently practice, right? Yeah. Wow. How do you balance practicing and working for a, a major company? Well, I mean, I, I, I think it was only possible, at least personally, uh, because I had practiced for almost 10 years already, right? And then obviously you added the training, that's almost 15 years. So like definitely had the muscle memory and some of that, right? And, and a lot of the procedures... And the operations and the things that I'm doing are, you know, by tens and tens of thousands of, you know, repetitive, you know, sort of types of things in healthcare. Um, uh, and, and I think that that that's allows me to have, again, talking about foundations, a foundation of a clinical practice to be able to say, and I enjoy it too, but, but something to say, I can do this still at an incredibly high level because I've had 10 years of right doing, doing that. I think it had, I jumped out after one year or after residency or even after med school, I think my ability to be flexible in that way would, would have obviously been diminished significantly. Um, and I think for me, again, it reminds me, it's like stepping through the looking glass every time. Every time I go back into clinical practice as part of my day, 
I realize that like, again, putting aside some of the emotional attachments, which is just like, man, there's a lot of suffering that we need to continue to, to apply our talents to fix. Um, but, but then there's also this infrastructure thing that just keeps hitting you over the head. EMRs can be frustrating. Workflows can be frustrating. Lack of good technology is frustrating. And you're like, I see what the future is in part of my week. And the other part of my week, I see what the reality is. And that's that a really rough. good, like, it's a, it's, cool. a, it's a gut check, right? And, um, and, it, and you talking to other physicians and realizing, like, am I even solving the problems that physicians need to be solved, right? Um, you'll find there's all kinds of cool startups out there. Uh, why aren't they getting traction? Sometimes it's infrastructure, but also sometimes it's because they're not solving something that clinicians really need. Um, and so I think having that grounding is really important. That's awesome. You get both perspectives. Well, it, it sometimes is awesome. Sometimes it's very stressful and, and uh, it, you know, very, make, keeps me very busy. Um, I, I would say that, uh, you know, 20 to 40% is probably the right range of, of the mix, right? For those in academics, it's a very easy equation to sort of work out. Um, I, I'm finding it to be really, and again, keeping a little toe in academics as well. So kind of thinking about publishing and stuff. I like, I like doing all those things. I will say that Will there ever be a time when I have to make a decision and start going one direction? Maybe that's, you know, that's something that I'm still struggling with too, um, to be honest with you. But right now I really just love the mix and I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. When you said 20, 40, is it like 20, 40% um, clinical and then, or uh, yeah, how would you, you? Yeah. I mean, well, obviously you can take whatever percentage you want. You know, you think 10% is a half a day. And so you just consider those blocks and see how you can fit, fit them into schedules. I think, again, not that this is, um, uh, you know, was intentional, but just when I made some of these career changes, it just happened to be in a time when there's been obviously between the pandemic and then just massive workforce shortages, let's be honest, across specialties. I mean, physicians are both retiring and checking out of healthcare at a high rate. Um, and not to mention all the other, uh, you know, healthcare staff. And so we are, we are heading towards a pretty, you know, even from my perspective, a pretty difficult time ahead, I think for, um, for healthcare and our, you know, patients getting access to healthcare, et cetera. Um, and so with that, I, I think there's a lot more flexibility in healthcare systems being willing to work with physicians about, you know, two days a week, one day a week, et cetera, just to be able to continue to provide care to patients. Um, and again, if you're in a very subspecialized area, it's even more important. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I don't know, would this have been possible, you know, 10, 20 years ago? I don't know. But certainly right now, uh, with the way that, the, you know, the job market is, the way that, the, you know, sort of the, the physician shortfall is, I, uh, this is a perfect time to take an opportunity, I think, uh, take some autonomy as a physician and say, you know, here's what I'm willing to trade my time for. Here's what I want to work on. Got it. Uh, I did kind of want to take a step back and ask a, a more basic question that I, I was meaning to ask sooner. Um, but I was wondering if you could describe kind of to a medical student, like what you do at, um, at Nuance. Like kind of like, I know you're saying about population level data, but yeah, like how would you describe in, in your own words? Yeah, I think I think the best way to describe it is um, you, you sort of looking at the the technology that we currently have in the world um, and finding things that are coming down the line, whether it's computer science related, whether it's just literally just cloud technology type things. And how do I apply those to make those products that people use all day better 
that's one thing I do. The other thing is sort of saying, this is a disruptive force coming down the line. How will this impact from a strategic perspective, healthcare, and then of course by by you know extension our business or 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 the things that we we are building, um, and 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 that is is a ton of fun too. So it's really again it's like a, this straddling of you know core innovation with you know again real world products and making those things kind of work together in, in an environment as you know that's so fast paced. Every three months there's a brand new you know. Uh, innovation or brand new solution as FDA cleared. So it's very, it's, it's very fast paced, very exciting time. That's awesome. I, I feel like you truly, you know, have the power to change medicine. Well, I don't know about me, but at least I'm, I'm a part of it. I, I can say I'm a tiny, 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 tiny piece of the, of the puzzle. Yeah. Is, is there anything in particular that you're really excited about in the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah, well, without question, it's large language. Model. I mean, there's no, there's no, again, I, I, I emphasized it earlier too, but, but, there's really no technology, even if you took all the AI, all the AI advancements and all the things that we've talked about up until now, nothing's going to hold the candle to what we're going to see in the next five years uh, with regard to how large language models will imp impact the, the practice of medicine, for sure, and a lot of other industries. What do you mean by large language models? Is that like so like your, your chat GPT is a good example for those in the audience who haven't had a chance to play with it the, the work from open AI obviously a lot large technology companies have their own version of this but obviously just a massive typically transformer based model trained on you know billions if not trillions of tokens typically straight from you know literature and whatever you know the internet etc but that's a convergence of compute architecture and data that is the spark that we've all been sort of expecting. And now I think um, it's it's happening in, right before our eyes. And um, it's going to be very difficult, honestly, to keep up uh, no matter where you're sitting, whether you're practicing in you know rural Oklahoma or you're practicing in New York City, the things that are gonna be coming down the line, both from the consumer side, your patients, they won't be no longer be like Googling things, they'll be, interrogating a large language model for the things that they are worried about. And they're going to come to you with all kinds of stuff um, just from that perspective. But then also what are the things that this technology, uh, what, what, what things can it actually really make uh, better for your life as a clinician? Think about things like note writing and composing letters for prior authorization or uh, summarizing patient charts, et cetera, like all of these things. Uh, even just medical knowledge, like where should I refer this patient with this series of labs and my suspected diagnosis, all of these things are going to be coming into our hands way faster than we think. And if we aren't thinking about it, aren't ready for it, if we aren't preparing ourselves, at least as a workforce with basic AI literacy is my kind of soapbox, I think we're going to be missing out on, on some things that will really help, uh, obviously, our practice, but certainly our patients. What are your thoughts on generative AI, like stable diffusion? Um, do you think that's going to affect medicine as well? Or I do. How do you see it affecting it? No, absolutely. I mean, obviously, coming from the you know an imaging heavy specialty, you know, again going back to the idea of the bottleneck of access to to useful data. Now imagine I can augment my model with rare cases, or I could, if my model's underperforming in a certain population or segment, can I can I augment that with you know, images that are sufficiently good that they can, you know, be used for a clinically trained model. That's still a somewhat open question. 
but from some of the early work I've seen, you saw some maybe with the work out of Stanford on this, I think we're going to have a similar explosion in potential for access to useful imaging data that, that actually can lead to something that can be used in the clinic. So 100%, um, it's, it's obviously a lot more difficult to train a, a good generative model with enough data again. But once that, I think we can get close to that space, um, huge, huge, huge potential for worldwide for medical imaging technologies. Yeah. Uh, one of our closing questions, uh, how has how uh, mentorship shaped your path? Oh man, I nothing. I I haven't done anything without having at least at least four or five people that I you know work with routinely. I I find myself uh, constantly asking uh, questions of people that have been down certain roads before. Sometimes people outside of my area um, to get their perspective, especially for big decisions like career things. Um, for you know, obviously everything from grant writing to how do I take care of this patient? You know your experience with that all the time i think and that's what uh, it's just really cool i think about the medical culture that we built in general as i'm sure you recognize from med school you can call up your pathology professor and, and ask a question and these people are your network forever and you know leveraging that i think is a is a superpower leveraging the the, the, the contacts and the mentors that you've kind of run into along the way over the course of your career getting completely different perspectives um maybe it's advice that you didn't want to hear the hard to hear stuff that's that's maybe the most valuable stuff yeah uh, so yeah no I, I i can't say enough about how much i benefited from that i tried to pay it back as best as i can whether it's you know am i a good example maybe i'm a bad example i don't know but whatever it is i hope i can give that insight back uh to those kind of coming up right now and um you know i like i always say i if i had to go to med school now i probably wouldn't get in because they're <laughs> the Current generation is way smarter than I was, um, and I'm constantly impressed by the the next you know the next generation coming up behind me. Dang. Um, last question, Dr. Lundgren. I was wondering, what advice would you give to yourself uh, at your med school graduation? You know, like right when you're graduating. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's interesting. I um, it's always easy to look back and paint a very clear narrative of how things happened. Um, but in reality, if you really sit down and face yourself and think about it, 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 you, it was a lot of uncertainty. I think the things that I would, I would tell myself to just maybe chill out a little bit about some of those big milestones, like step one, which residency am I going to get into worrying about like the rankings of X, Y, Z, like all that stuff. It's easy for folks to say, they always told me it doesn't matter, but I never believed them. And I still took it too seriously. I think recognizing that, you know, enjoying the journey and, and learning as much as humanly possible, even in spots that you don't think are going to apply to your practice or life. That's what I would tell myself to do. Just, you know, focus on the learning and the experience and everything else will fall into place. Thank you so much, Dr. Lunger. That, that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's inspiring. <laughs> well, thanks for the opportunity to chat with you. And, and again, congrats on all the great work you're doing. I'm looking forward to following your career too and seeing where you end up. Oh, thank you.